Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. We are continuing 90s Action Movie Month with a franchise-launching film, a franchise that is still going strong today, 1996's Mission Impossible, directed by Brian De Palma, starring, of course, Tom Cruise. We're going to go into the production of it, my memories of it, a lot of stuff to talk about. It just turned 25 years old. That's hard to believe. But before we get into any of that, I want to thank you for watching the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, we would love for you to become an audio subscriber you can find all that information down in the description below and if you're listening to us and you want to check out the video version of the show you can find it on youtube at youtube.com slash dan merle movies we'd love to have you join in there Mission Impossible the movie is based on, of course, a television show that ran on CBS for seven seasons from 1966 to 1973, and the overall premise is the same as the movie franchise. There is a team of super spies that are part of something called the Impossible Missions Force. Each week on the TV show, they were given a different task. Usually it involves some kind of subterfuge, perhaps involving the Cold War. They would have to accomplish, including a revolving cast of team members. The show starred Peter Graves as Jim Phelps, the team leader and it featured one of the best TV theme songs ever written. The show was revived in 1988, spurred on by a writer's strike for ABC, and even though it lasted two seasons and 35 episodes, audience interest just wasn't there, certainly not at the level that the original TV show enjoyed, and it looked like Mission Impossible might be done as a franchise. But in the early to mid-90s, movie adaptations of TV shows, particularly from the 60s and 70s, became hot properties in Hollywood, a Hollywood that was increasingly looking to launch new franchises based on pre-existing intellectual properties that audiences were already familiar with. And leading up to Mission Impossible, they had already gotten versions of The Addams Family, The Fugitive, The Beverly Hillbillies, Maverick, Car 54, Where Are You?, The Flintstones, The Brady Bunch Movie, Flipper, and many others. Some of these adaptations, like The Fugitive, were huge box office successes, were critically acclaimed, but a good number of them were either financial or critical disappointments or both. At the same time, Tom Cruise had hit the stratosphere. 1986's Top Gun launched him into superstardom and follow-up roles in movies like Rain Man, Born on the Fourth of July, A Few Good Men, and The Firm had cemented him on Hollywood's A-list. Seeking more control over his own career and a bigger share of the profits from the movies he made, Cruise decided to form a production company with his agent at CAA, Paula Wagner, called Cruise Wagner Productions. And for the company's first movie, Cruise targeted an old favorite. I remember Tom called me and he said, I've always loved Mission Impossible. I'm a huge fan. We just set up shop at Paramount Pictures, and Tom said, they have Mission Impossible, one of my most favorite things. Let's do it. Rather than doing a straight adaptation of the TV show and casting himself as Mr. Phelps, Cruz instead decided to play a new character named Ethan Hunt, who's under the tutelage of Jim Phelps in the IMF. To direct Mission Impossible, Cruz and Wagner first talked to director Sidney Pollack. But after a chance encounter with director Brian De Palma via Steven Spielberg, Cruz decided that this was the only director for the job. I stayed up for about 14 hours and I just got all of his De Palma's movies. I just went, oh my gosh, that he's 
he's got a direct mission possible. Brian De Palma's a really interesting choice for this movie. He's not the first name that would jump into your mind at the time when you think of a big blockbuster action movie. But when you go back through his career, the fact that he had done action before, he'd done tension and suspense before in movies like The Untouchables, marrying that sensibility of great characters with suspense and great set pieces, Brian De Palma actually makes a whole lot of sense. De Palma, who at the time was known more for his auteur sensibilities than his box office acumen, was also eager to make the movie, not just because of the intrigue of making a spy film, but also of making a box office hit. I was determined to make a huge hit. And I said, with Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, I'm ready. After developing some concepts for the movie's main set pieces, Brian De Palma enlisted David Kep to write the screenplay. Kep had made a huge impact co-writing the screenplay for Jurassic Park with author Michael Crichton and had written the screenplay for De Palma's previous film, Carlito's Way, starring Al Pacino. I read an early draft of Kep's original script, and it's not one of those disaster stories that you hear about where it was completely unworkable, they had to bring in another writer to rewrite it from the top down, and he was on it just because he was on for vanity reasons or for legal reasons. It actually bears a pretty close resemblance to the finished version. However, on the early draft that I read, there are also the names of a myriad of other writers who worked on the film who did not get final credit in the screenplay, including Stephen Salian, Willard Hike, and Gloria Katz, and Brian De Palma himself. The draft that I read is dated November 7th, 1994, and like I said, it's pretty much the same script, although there are a few key differences. At the beginning of the script, Ethan already wants to quit the IMF, and he and Jim Phelps' wife, Claire, are already having an affair that they're trying to hide from Jim, or so Ethan thinks. There are also a couple more members to Ethan's squad that he assembles midway through the movie that didn't make it to the final version of the film, and Luther, the character played by Ving Rhames, doesn't make it to the end of Mission Impossible. He is killed off in the train at the end of the film. The second act is also pretty different. There is a huge amount of time devoted to recruiting and finding the disavowed IMF agents. That's all condensed in the final film. Kittredge has a bigger role. The Phelps reveal is different. But when you look at the basic structure of the story, it involves the knock list. It involves the train finale. All of the big pieces are there, including the CIA heist in the middle of the movie. Despite some reluctance on Cruz's part regarding his character, De Palma, Wagner, and Cruz got the green light to make Mission Impossible with Paramount Pictures based on David Kep's script. And the day after the pitch meeting with the studio, Paula Wagner called Brian De Palma with some good and also some awkward news. The good news is we're a go picture. The bad news is we're firing David Kep and we're bringing on Robert Town. Well, how do you convey this to your pal? Robert Town won an Academy Award for his screenplay for the movie Chinatown back in the 1970s, and he had also been a credited writer on two of Cruz's recent films, Days of Thunder and The Firm. He was brought in to give a guiding hand to the production and to really strengthen Tom Cruise's character of Ethan Hunt. But according to De Palma, Town's stabilizing force almost upended the production altogether. Town's attitude basically was to rewrite the whole script which was wrong. Dave had to come back and rewrite the script. I literally had one screenwriter in one hotel and another screenwriter in another hotel writing simultaneously. Not surprisingly, according to Town, it was he who saved the movie, writing the script often in between takes. The first thing that they shot were the, was the blue screen stuff. Tom and I, we would go over the scenes and I would rewrite them in the middle of the night. And, uh, and sometimes even between takes. 
Regardless of who wrote which line, Mission Impossible moved into production in 1995, and at Brian De Palma's urging, the script was rewritten to be a globe-trotting adventure instead of taking place just in the United States. One of the locations, one of the first locations that we see in the movie is Prague, which is a popular tourist destination today. But back in 1995, Prague was less than a decade away from being behind the Iron Curtain. And it was a city that not many modern American film crews had been able to film in. We were one of the first major American films to go to Prague in this new and, and show contemporary Prague, which is a beautiful, mysterious city. Since we're in Prague, which is where the beginning of the movie takes place, let's jump right into the movie. And we start with a very short prologue, which is set in Kiev, which is essentially to establish the team, what they do. They're doing spy stuff. It doesn't really matter what's going on here. We meet some of the team members. We see some of their technology, including the trademark Mission Impossible face masks that, let's be honest here, were far less convincing in 1996 than they are today. We then launch into an opening sequence to Lalo Schifrin's iconic Mission Impossible theme. You have to have this in the movie. The Mission Impossible theme was actually a hit on the Billboard Top 100 back in 1967 when it was released. It peaked at number 41, and this is a fact that I didn't know until I was doing research for this show. I guess a lot of other people know this, but the baseline of the Mission Impossible theme is actually based on Morse code. The Morse code for M is a dash dash, and the Morse code for an I is a dot dot, so when you translate that musically, it becomes dash dash dot dot. I guess a lot of people knew this. This blew my mind. I had no idea, and that is just a brilliant musical motif from Schifrin's mind right there. Also, when you know what you're looking for, the credits pretty much spoil the entire movie, including the big reveal shot of Mr. Phelps at the end. And I guess the hope from the producers and the editors and everybody else was that the credits pass by so quickly and the shots flash by out of context and out of sequence that you wouldn't really know what you were looking for. But I think if you're sitting in a theater and you're really paying attention, you would see these shots of John Voight and go, wait a minute, isn't he supposed to be dead? Mission Impossible holds up really well as an action thriller, but I think the thing that dates it the most is the technology. And I don't mean the technology that's involved with making the film. I mean the technology that you see in the film. And it starts right off the bat as we come out of the opening credits to Jim Phelps, played by John Voight, the leader of the IMF team, sitting on an airplane as a flight attendant comes by offering personal cassette tapes for passengers to watch movies at their seats. Would you like to watch a movie, Mr. Phelps? I prefer the theater. Would you consider the cinema of the Ukraine? Obviously, now this is something that's in almost every airplane and back of the seat technology, you just push a button. But you have to admit in 1996, this was pretty impressive technology. A portable VCR in the armrest of an airplane seat? What will they think of next? We see Phelps get his briefing, and it involves a very complicated plot that's going to go on throughout the film. The team is sent to Prague in order to infiltrate an embassy so that they can capture footage of a mole named Alexander Galitsyn, who's going to come in and steal half of something called the Knock List, which contains all the names of the deep cover agents in Eastern Europe. Obviously, if this were to get out into the open, this would compromise the identities and operations, which just couldn't happen. And this is also a high price item. He's going to be selling this to somebody for a lot of money. So obviously the IMF has got to go in there and stop this from happening. Your mission, Jim, should you choose to accept it, is to obtain photographic proof of the theft, shadow Galitzin to his buyer, and apprehend them both. 
After the whole of your mission, should you choose to accept it, and that this message will self-destruct in five minutes, Phelps then disguises the tape puffing itself into a cloud of smoke by lighting a cigarette on the airplane, which I'm pretty sure even in 1996 you definitely couldn't do on a commercial airliner. The first 20 minutes or so of this movie unfold about how you would expect a Mission Impossible movie to unfold. The team gets a mission, they all meet together, you meet the different members, you see the technology. Luckily for this mission, Ethan Hunt is sent in undercover as a senator who happens to look and sound a lot like Ethan Hunt. I want to know who these people are and how they're spending our taxpayers' money. We were living in a democracy the last time I checked. I actually love the misdirect in this opening. It plays out so by the numbers that you don't expect things to go as badly as they do. And something else that underlines that is the fact that the team is not made up of a bunch of nobodies. You're actually surprised when they're picked off one by one. You have Kristen Scott Thomas, who was a rising star at that time. The same year that Mission Impossible came out, she would star in that year's Best Picture winner, The English Patient. You have Emilio Estevez at the height of his early to mid-1990s Mighty Ducks fame. Of course, you've got John Voight in there. You don't expect things to go bad for this team, and yet things go incredibly badly. The mission is a complete failure. Everybody on the team is killed, it seems, except for Ethan. And when you go back, you can also see the seeds of what is going to be revealed later. You can see the other IMF team surveilling the team that we're supposed to be watching. It really gives this movie a great sense of rewatchability when you understand the plot and what's actually happening. My team, my team is dead! Galitzin's gone. They knew we were coming, man. They knew we were coming and the disc is gone. With his entire team seemingly killed, Ethan is summoned to a meeting with his superior, Kittredge, who's played with beautiful slimeball energy by the actor Henry Zerny. He brings the same kind of energy to one of my favorite modern horror thrillers, Ready or Not. Everybody has pressure points, Barnes. You find something that's personally important to him and you squeeze. This is also where things unravel for Ethan. The entire operation of filming Galitzin, getting him to steal the knock list, which turns out to be a fake, is all a decoy. It's a mole hunt because the IMF believes that there is somebody in Ethan's team that was embedded deep, that was trying to sell them out, and Ethan, as the only survivor, is now the only suspect. The mole's deep inside. And like you said, You survived. Luckily, Kittredge and Ethan are meeting at a restaurant that is full of glass and water, so Ethan uses some explosive gum that he'd gotten from Emilio Estevez earlier in the film to make his escape. In a signature moment for the film, one of two or three instantly recognizable Mission Impossible moments, Tom Cruise outrunning a wall of water cascading down out of the restaurant. This was one of the most difficult stunts, if not the most difficult stunt, to coordinate in the entire film, both for the film's stunt coordinator and Tom Cruise himself. Because the weight of the water, the framework around uh, where he was going through was solid steel. So you hear one, two, then, and on two, the tank behind me blew out, and then three, so it took everything in my power to stay there for three. Now disavowed and on the run from his own agency, Ethan decides that he needs to find whoever it is that was trying to buy the knock list because that person will then lead him to the real mole. Ethan knows that the name for this operation was apparently Job 314. He finds out this information from Kittredge. He got himself in a position to buy our knock list. Uh, 
Operation he referred to as Job 314, the job he thought Galitzin was doing tonight. And in one of those plot things that you just kind of have to hold your nose and swallow in order to get this movie to keep going, he sees a Bible and understands that it's not Job 314, it's Job 314, a reference to the book of Job. Of course, that is the easiest connection to make in the entire world. Remember the technology thing that I said dated Mission Impossible? Well, this is the worst part of the entire movie when it comes to that. Ethan knows that the potential buyer for the Noclist was somebody named Max, the kind of shady arms dealer that Mission Impossible would soon be very famous for putting at the center of all of its films. So he scrolls a Usenet group, a Bible Usenet group, under the book of Job, and then sends a message, an electronic message, to Max at Job 314, saying that the goods are tainted, you have to meet me immediately, but this whole thing doesn't hold up, because this internet is so different from the internet that we have now, that even though it was kind of modern technology at the time, it's so out of date, it may as well be science fiction by today's sensibilities. One thing I did notice is that while searching for Max, Ethan tries to go to Max.com, which at the time didn't exist, but it definitely exists now because I looked it up and it turns out to be the homepage for Max International, a company that specializes in selling glutathione supplements. Now that's marketed as an immune system strengthener, despite the fact that WebMD says there's, quote, no good scientific evidence to support these uses. I don't know. Sounds like that's the perfect front for an arms dealer. Am I right? As Ethan is surfing the web, Claire shows up. Claire, again, is Jim Phelps' wife, a member of the team that Ethan thought was killed with everybody else. Claire says that she aborted the mission like she was ordered to and waited until the predetermined rendezvous time to come back to the safe house. And in one of the all-time great Tom Cruise freakouts, Ethan informs Claire of her husband's death very delicately. Wake up, Claire! Jim's dead! They're dead! They're all dead! Claire is played by Emmanuel Béart, who is a French actress who came in with much acclaim, and this was really her big Hollywood break. She didn't do any big Hollywood films after this, really, and I think that this was really a missed opportunity for her and for her character, because of all the characters in Mission Impossible, probably not a shocker, she gets the least to do. She's basically there to be a distraction, to betray the team, and then to die. Uh, there's not a whole lot else going on with Claire. She's kind of at the service of all the other characters in the movie. And it is a shame because there's something very intriguing about Emmanuel Baird and just how she carries herself. She does bring a very mysterious vibe to this character, or at least I think she would have if the character had been allowed to be mysterious in any way. And I think this was a missed opportunity. I wonder if Claire had had more to do if her character were a little bit more well-written, if Emmanuel Baird would have been somebody who was in a lot more Hollywood blockbusters as time went on. We're supposed to be back here at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock if we're bored, we don't return here until 4 o'clock, oh, 400, 4 a.m. With Claire now on board, Ethan meets up with Max, who is played with a wonderful lust for life by Vanessa Redgrave. I don't have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession. It's like a warm blanket. Ethan convinces Max that the knock list that she received was indeed a phony, and he does this by having her pull out the disc that was stolen from Galitzin that he took from the embassy, and this disc has a capacity of 230 megabytes. Who knew such portable storage existed? 
Ethan wins Max's trust by proving that the knock list that she received was a fake and gets a job of his own. He says that he will steal the real knock list, the entire knock list, in exchange for information about the identity of Job. He wants to know who Job is because Job is the IMF mole. 10 million in negotiable US Treasury certificates and bearer form coupons attached. And one more thing, your personal assurance that Job will be at the exchange. This leads to the centerpiece of the movie, an impossible heist inside CIA headquarters in order to get the knock list from a computer that's located inside of a locked down high-tech vault. And it's this sequence that really proves why Brian De Palma was the right director for this movie. It is one of the most tension-filled, suspenseful, well-executed heist scenes or scenes of any kind in any modern action movie. It's also a fantastic heist, and I love a great movie heist. It has all the elements. First up, you have the crew, Claire and Ethan, obviously, and then two additional disavowed IMF agents, Luther Stickle, played by Ving Rhames, and Krieger, played by Jean Renault. Rhames and Renault are both brilliant casting decisions, making the most out of their utility characters, and Rhames in particular got a great career boost through the rewriting process on Mission Impossible because Luther Stickle, as I mentioned before, originally did not survive the first movie. Instead, Luther is alive at the end of this film, and Rames would go on to appear in every subsequent Mission Impossible sequel. The only man alive who actually hacked NATO Ghost Cop. There was never any physical evidence that I had anything to do with that, with that, that exceptional piece of work. Once the crew has been assembled, it's time for the rundown, the scene in every heist movie where the leader of the heist tells the team and by proxy the audience exactly what needs to happen in order for this heist to go right and exactly how the heist can go wrong. The intrusion countermeasures are only deactivated by a double electronic key card, which we won't have. This is actually very stylistic exposition, but it's also necessary because in order to build the suspense, you have to know what the rules of the game are before going in. If you know going in why Ethan can't hit the floor, or what's going to happen if Krieger sneezes, or the danger of that drop of sweat falling off his glasses, that builds the suspense, and that is key to this sequence working. All three systems are state-of-the-art. The heist sequence takes up almost exactly 15 minutes of the movie, and 10 of those 15 minutes are almost completely dialogue and music free. There's very incidental dialogue, there's no score underneath what's happening, because De Palma understands that the suspense is situational. It doesn't need an underscore to tell people to be tense. If he's doing his job right, the audience is already gonna be tense. And when you think about it, is there another summer movie in recent history that has given over the centerpiece of itself to a sequence that is so quote-unquote small? I can't think of another recent one that does, and yet this still remains one of the most effective. This was one of those theatrical experiences I remember. The audience that I was in the theater with, the two or three times that I saw Mission Impossible, every time was completely silent during this part because the tension was palpable and De Palma was doing what his hero or one of his heroes Alfred Hitchcock would do. He would play the audience like a piano. You would have these gasps when things would happen, when Ethan almost hits the floor. You have this breaking of laughter, this tension breaking laughter every time something would come to a crescendo when Ethan catches the sweat. 
It is a beautifully orchestrated piece of suspenseful filmmaking. This is also an example of where the effect of the movie should take precedence over breaking things down completely logically because one of the best moments of the movie is when Ethan is dangling inches off of the floor of the vault and we've already seen that even one drop of water will set off this alarm which means catastrophe. It's a lockdown, everybody's caught, the heist is over, mission is failed. Now given the height that Ethan is off of the floor, there is no way for him to move his hand in order to catch this drop of sweat that comes off of his glasses and if you're demanding 100% logical accountability then this sequence quote-unquote doesn't work but the sequence does work because again movies are fantasy and sometimes sometimes you have to make these concessions to say yes this doesn't work in a real world but it works in the world of this movie because that moment the sweat dripping off the glasses the hand coming in is an applause moment it's a oh you release the breath the audience releases its tension it works great inside the film and if you're sitting here worried about the hand clearance of ethan off the floor of the movie then you're not letting the movie do its work movies are not reality and that doesn't excuse any logical infallibility sometimes movies rely on them because they're lazy but this is one where if you want to nitpick the movie to death and say it doesn't work because there's not room for ethan to move his hand okay I guess you can but that means you're really sucking a lot of the enjoyment and a lot of the fun out of a movie like this Missy. I'll continue our journey through Mission Impossible in just a moment but first a word from our sponsor this episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats but with one gram of sugar or less Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors, and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway, and it's something that can keep me going throughout the day. They also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt, and peanut butter dark chocolate. That one is my favorite. The combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what I go for, but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose. No matter what your situation is, it's a great snack on the go, and they are gluten-free, plant-based, and non-GMO with no soy, trans fat, sugar, alcohols, or artificial colors. And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. What about him? 
someone in manning a radar tower in Alaska by the end of the day. Just mail him his clothes. The operation is, of course, a success because, well, the movie would be over if it wasn't. And then Ethan narrowly avoids losing the list to Krieger due to his extensive knowledge of close-up magic. That's not the least. What's the matter? You, you've never seen this trick. This also leads to the very unorthodox way that the movie handles its big twist. We've been led to believe up to this point that John Voight's character, Jim Phelps, was killed along with the rest of the team in the opening of the movie. But following the close-up magic scene, Ethan picks up the Bible that he's been using to pull the Job quotes from and sees a stamp from the Drake Hotel Chicago. This is another one of those plot things that you just kind of have to hold your nose and accept because earlier in the movie, we heard Jim Phelps tell his IMF team that during an earlier assignment, he was put up in... The Drake Hotel, Chicago. Are we off on one of your cushy recruiting assignments again? Yeah, where'd they put you up this time? Drake Hotel, Chicago. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> punishing. Now, it's very unlikely that a high-level IMF agent like Jim Phelps would hold on to an incriminating piece of evidence, but this gets us from point A to point B, so... Okay. A few minutes later, Phelps reveals himself to Ethan, saying that he was actually only injured in Prague and has spent the rest of this movie trying to catch up with the team. And then we have a very interesting sequence. It's a discussion between Phelps and Hunt where Jim is trying to convince Ethan that Kittredge is the mole. It was Kittredge. Kittredge. Kittredge, Ethan. In any other movie, this would be a false reveal. A character comes in and tells the audience and the lead character that somebody else is the bad guy, but the reveal of who it is wouldn't come until the third act. Now, this would be a little more predictable because we've seen it done this way in so many other movies before. Mission Impossible does this differently. As Phelps is telling Ethan what Kittredge did, we see Ethan in his mind working out how Jim was able to do it. First, he took out Jack at the elevator. This is a really interesting way to reveal that Jim Phelps is the bad guy, and it also puts a lot of trust in the audience to understand what's going on. Modern movie making seems to be deathly afraid of confusing the audience. They think that most audiences are incredibly stupid. So I think something like this would have probably been underscored and laid out much more clearly, either in the more conventional third act reveal that we've seen in other movies or in a much more intentional way. But here, we're seeing the interior thoughts of our main character. Are they true? Are they not? We don't know. There's even an ambiguity in them. We see two versions of the car blowing up. One where Phelps does it, one where Claire does it. It's establishing that Ethan doesn't quite know which one is the true version. This is a big jump for the movie to take. And also, like with so many other things that Mission Impossible did, I don't think that a modern movie would have come out this way because I think that executives would have been too afraid that too many people wouldn't get it. When you think about it, Ethan, it was inevitable. No more Cold War. No more secrets you keep from everyone but yourself. Speaking of risks, the idea of making the main character from the TV show the bad guy in the movie is pretty much unprecedented. That would be like having Captain Kirk in Star Trek The Motion Picture align with the Klingons and then turn around and blow up the Enterprise. It enraged pretty much everybody who was familiar with the original TV show. It just happens that in 1996, there weren't that many hardcore fans of the original TV show left to be enraged. One group that was seemingly unanimously furious, though, were the actors from the original Mission Impossible. 
impossible. Martin Landau, who was a regular in the original cast, told MTV years later that he and the rest of the actors had turned down parts in the movie because they wanted to kill them all off at the beginning of the film, and he said that Peter Graves, who loved the character of Jim Phelps, was not happy with the plot turn. And Peter Graves himself told CNN in 1996, quote, I am very sorry that they chose to call him Phelps. They could have solved that very easily by either having me in a scene in the very beginning or reading a telegram from me saying, hey boys, I'm retired, gone to Hawaii, thank you, goodbye, you take over now. I felt a little bad that they called him Phelps, and what happens to him happens. There's also no way a TV show adaptation today would do that. First of all, there's no way that it wouldn't leak out before the movie came out, and the social media outrage alone would derail the narrative around the entire film. I really do think, when you look at the totality of Mission Impossible, that it is one of the last movies of its size that was unafraid to take real risks, and they all pay off in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. The finale of the film takes place on and on top of a high-speed TGV train from London to Paris as it goes underneath the Channel, which is the tunnel underneath the English Channel that connects England and France. Like Prague, even though this is now a very frequent thing for people to use, back in 1996 it was new. The Channel was only opened in 1994, so this was a very unique place to stage a third act set piece. Kittredge is lured to the train with the promise of getting the identity of the real IMF mole. Max is on the train to receive the knock list, which Luther prevents her from making public. Ethan plays his game to the last move, knowing that the money that Max is paying him for the knock list will bring Jim Phelps out of the woodwork. What about Job? Wouldn't worry about him when you get the money. He'll find you. Ethan gets Claire to reveal her complicity in the plot by posing as Phelps wearing a mask, which makes you wonder why anybody ever involved in the IMF would have a conversation with somebody without walking up to him first and just, you know, tugging on their face a little bit to see if they're the real person. We take the money. Ethan takes the blame. No one else has seen you alive. Then, pretty much as soon as she's revealed to be a bad guy, Claire is killed by Phelps, who steals the money from Ethan and almost gets away with it until Ethan puts on a pair of his spy glasses and reveals to Kittredge the identity of the real bad guy. Morning, Mr. Phelps. I'm not the only one who's seen you alive. According to Brian De Palma, this would have concluded the film if Robert Town had his way. There was no big action finale to be found in his rewritten script. Town had thought that it should be resolved with this uh, pulling masks off in the boxcar room. I said, you can't end Mission Impossible with people pulling masks off in a boxcar. Phelps climbs on top of the train to escape with the assistance of Krieger, who's apparently a double mole. He's following the train in a helicopter, and we get a great finale that is assisted by rapidly evolving CGI technology, a real wind machine, and some great strategic close-ups, some great storyboarding. This sequence really does hold up due to great planning on the part of Brian De Palma. Yes, there are some CGI rough edges, but I think the key to this sequence holding up is the decision to put the camera right in the actors' faces. We see Tom Cruise, especially, the hair blowing as he clings onto the side of the train. It's a mixture of different techniques, which we've talked about on the show before, is what helps these older movies age well. It's not all CGI. They use the CGI where they had to. And like I said, there are some shots that don't look quite as convincing, particularly ones where they did go with full CGI doubles. But the sequence also works as a payoff to the rest of the movie. We get a great callback to the exploding chewing gum gag. The helicopter explodes, killing both Krieger and 
Phelps, and Ethan Hunt is blown away from the helicopter right up into the lens of the camera. Hello, trailer shot. Max is captured, Ethan is taken off the disavowed list, Luther is reinstated, and all is right with the world. And at the end of the movie, Ethan fully intends to retire from the IMF, only to find himself recruited on his flight out of town. Would you consider the cinema of the Caribbean? Aruba, perhaps. And as the end credits roll, we are treated to a cover of the Mission Impossible theme from Larry Mullins Jr. and Adam Clayton, members of the band U2. This version of the Mission Impossible theme actually charted higher than the original version. This was a top 10 Billboard Hot 100 hit in the summer of 1996 when the movie came out. I bought the Mission Impossible soundtrack on CD and played it on my Discman when I was 13 years old. And I was very confused when I got to one particular track on the CD because I was trying to figure out which singer was Tom Cruise. That's because the song on the soundtrack was from a band called Cast. And yet for some reason, I thought that it meant that the song was performed by the cast of the movie. What can I say? I was an idiot. Mission Impossible opened on Memorial Day weekend 1996, fueled by a relentless marketing campaign featuring numerous action money shots from the movie. I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. Cruz and Wagner's first production was a box office sensation, setting a new four-day Memorial Day weekend record and taking in more money through its first six days than any movie in history. This was boosted by a Wednesday pre-Memorial Day opening and the fact that Mission Impossible was the only film to ever screen in 3,000 or more theaters. It ended up as the third highest grossing film domestically of summer 1996, behind only Independence Day and Twister, and it was the third highest grossing movie of 1996 overall, just just ahead of another Tom Cruise movie in fourth place, Jerry Maguire. In case you haven't noticed, the summer of 1996 was a real life-changing summer for me as a movie fan. Like I said, I was 13 years old, I was just developing my love for movies, and every big movie in the summer of 96 seemed like it was magic. From the huge world-scale destruction of Independence Day, to the natural disasters of Twister, to the action in this movie, to the shape-shifting Eddie Murphy and The Nutty Professor. The intersection of filmmaking and technology in the summer of 1996 was truly something special and it left a huge impression on me. Not all of these movies hold up, not all of them are the best movies ever made, but they're most of them some of my favorite movies ever made because I remember them so much because they had such an impact on me. Now that Mission Impossible has so many movies and a lot of really good movies in the franchise, I think that there's an inclination from a lot of people to sort of brush off the first movie as being weird or atonal or just not fitting into the franchise in general, but I think that that's not being fair to this film. Yes, it is different. It is different from any other Mission Impossible movie, but I still think it's one of the best because it laid the foundation and the groundwork for so much of what we see. Character-wise, you can draw a straight line from the Ethan Hunt of this movie to the Ethan Hunt that we've seen in the more recent Mission Impossible movies. And in a franchise that's now defined by huge, big-stakes action sequences literally strapping Tom Cruise to the outside of an airplane, the most suspenseful set pieces, I think, are still largely in this movie. Yes, it may be small ball by today's standards, but I think Mission Impossible set the standard for a franchise that it's still delivering. As always, I like to go over the special features on the Blu-ray disc that I own. This is an older edition of Mission Impossible. There was a reissue that happened right around the 25th anniversary, but I was looking at it, and I think that it's 
pretty much the same disc as this. The extras look the same. I don't really know if they did much more than repackage the Blu-ray for the 25th anniversary and reissue it. There is an 11-minute feature called Mission Remarkable, 40 Years of Creating the Impossible that covers not only the production of this movie, but the sequels up to the time that they made the feature, which I think was Mission Impossible 3. It might go as far as Mission Impossible 4. You also have a couple features on the making of different parts of the movies. You have Mission Explosive Exploits, which is about the stunt work of the movie. And you have Mission Catching the Train, which is about the train sequence. There's also a couple features that are unrelated to the movie. There's one called Mission Spies Among Us, which is about the actual work of spies. And the expert that they interview for this feature really takes the fun out of being a spy in a hilarious way. Unlike an actor who flubs up on a script and the director says cut and they reload the camera and you look at the script and you try it again if we mess up our lines and somebody says cut they're talking about your carotid artery there's also a feature that looks at the international spy museum which documents the different devices that you can find on display there and you get an assortment of trailers and tv spots for the film including the movie's original teaser and the movie's original trailer and that wraps it up for my look at Mission Impossible. We will be looking at another 90s action movie. As a matter of fact, another movie from the summer of 1996. And one of my personal favorites, I'll leave it there. I'm really excited to talk about this one, but we'll have to wait one more week for it. Thank you so much for watching the show. As I mentioned, if you are listening to us and you want to check out the video, you can find it on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Movies. And if you're watching us on YouTube, a great way to help the show grow is to become an audio subscriber. You can find that information down in the description below. Thanks so much for chatting with me about Mission Impossible. I'll be back with another big action movie next week, but until then, it's time to go back on the shelf. Thanks for watching.